The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14, we'll read verses 26 through 50. Mark 14, verse 26. And when Jesus and his disciples had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found his disciples sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again, Jesus went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found his disciples sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. 
And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by, he drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And Jesus' disciples, all of them, left him, and they fled. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we come to this passage of Scripture again this week, we do pray that you would open our eyes that we might understand and see. That you would incline our hearts that we might truly desire to see what's revealed in this passage to apply it to our lives. And that you would so order our steps that we would leave this place this morning endeavoring with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to walk in the ways of your commandments. We pray this for your glory and for our eternal good. Amen. In the 18th century, a revival known as the Great Awakening uh, broke out among the colonies in New England. Hundreds, were told, were converted to Christ through the preaching of men like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and Gilbert Tennant. One of the marks of this great revival was a deep conviction of sin. One incident will serve to introduce our topic this morning. John Rowland, a Presbyterian preacher, was invited by a Baptist church to preach the gospel. And according to one report, and I quote, Rowland proclaimed the terrors of the divine law with such energy to those already sinking under them that a few fainted away. His error, however, was publicly corrected by the Reverend Gilbert Tennant, who, standing at the foot of the pulpit and seeing the effect produced on the assembly, interrupted the preacher by this address. Brother Roland, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician There, Mr. Rowland, on this, changed immediately the tenor of his address, and he sought to direct to the Savior those who were overwhelmed with a sense of their guilt. But before this had taken place, numbers of people were carried out of the church in a state of insensibility. Well, there's something about Roland's sermon that reminds me of the message I preached to you last week. You may recall that we spent most of our time, as we looked at this passage, focusing upon the remaining sin of Jesus' disciples. He exhorted them 
he entreated them to watch and to pray. And yet again, and again, and again, they failed the Lord. They had no regard for their own spiritual welfare, nor did they have any true concern for Jesus' welfare as well. As I characterized it last week, they were guilty of the sin of spiritual apathy. And not only did they commit this sin repeatedly, but they did so in spite of clear instruction, in spite of having enjoyed privileged fellowship, in spite of having lived before them a perfect example of what it meant to watch and pray. And thus, we considered last week the believer's sin exposed. But there is another theme in our passage I did not have time to dwell on last week. I didn't focus much attention on the gracious way in which Jesus Christ, in our text, responds to his disciples' sin. Now, if there was ever a time when Jesus could justifiably have been totally preoccupied and absorbed with his own concerns and have totally ignored the concerns and needs of his disciples, it was now. In fact, had Jesus in our text completely ignored his sleeping disciples, you and I would lay no blame at his feet. But one of the most striking features of this account is the fact that during his most severe trial, Jesus does not cease to minister to his sheep. And brothers and sisters, that is wonderfully good news that you and I need to hear. In fact, we actually need both emphases. We need to come to grips with our sin. As I noted last time, we have a tendency to think too highly of ourselves. We have a tendency to minimize or sometimes even excuse our sin. And of course, this tendency can lead to spiritual pride. And we know from Scripture that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so for this reason, we need to bring ourselves time and time again before the searching light of Scripture in order to have our sins exposed. In order, if you were here in Sunday school this morning, to have those little foxes that spoil the vine slain. But we also need to have our faith encouraged. And the way that God encourages our faith is by highlighting, by underscoring, and by emphasizing his free, unlimited, extravagant grace towards sinners as it is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, not wanting to make John Rowland's mistake by preaching on sin without presenting the remedy... I want this week to focus on this other theme. I want to encourage our weak faith by marveling at the wondrous grace of Jesus Christ. 
And specifically, what I'd like to do this week is to focus and highlight five ways in which Jesus demonstrates his selfless love and his compassionate concern for the sinful people he came to save. So if you're taking notes, five ways from this text in which Jesus demonstrates his selfless love and his compassionate concern for the sinful people he came to save. That would be you and me if we're believers. The first thing I want you to note here from our text is that Jesus does not allow his disciples to continue in their sinful sleep, their spiritual apathy, but he rebukes them for their sin. Notice verse 37. Jesus finds them sleeping, and he says to Peter, Simon, are you still asleep? Could you not watch one hour? You see, rather than allowing his disciples to continue in a sleep that would have been spiritually harmful for them, Jesus comes to them, he gently wakes them, and then with a rhetorical question, he rebukes them. And we know that his rebuke was not just intended for Peter, because in verse 40 we read, quote, they did not know what to answer him. In other words, they all felt conviction for their sin. Now, for the unbeliever, such rebukes are not a blessing, but an irritation. And that's why people who are not believers don't like to come to church, or at least churches like this, because it's irritating. And if you feel irritated this morning, that's not a good sign. But for the true believer, such rebukes are welcome. Here's how David puts it in Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous strike me, he says. It shall be kindness. Let him rebuke me. It shall be excellent oil. My head will not refuse it. Dear child of God, just think of this. Jesus is not going to allow you to continue in a state of spiritual apathy or sinful behavior without some sort of correction. He may send a trial or affliction that's going to reorient your affections to things above. Or he may send a faithful friend that confronts you. Or perhaps Jesus will use a sermon like the one John Rowland preached to confront you about your sin, to awaken you out of your sinful slumber. I hope my sermon last week helped to awaken you if you were sleeping. Somebody says, well, Dr. Bob, I have to confess, I had a difficult time staying awake while you were preaching. I have to confess I'm not a dynamic preacher and I know the enchanting power of a dry sermon. <laughs> however, however, 
Can we not all admit that in many cases, our drowsiness during preaching, our daydreaming, our distraction maybe with that email or Facebook post is not the fault of the preacher or the sermon, but rather it's our own spiritual apathy. Could we not pay attention to the sermon just one hour? Now, I'm not trying to be unkind, but I'm just underscoring the fact, folks, that Jesus loves us so much. He's not going to let that go on. He's going to confront us. He's going to correct us. He's going to rebuke us. And I think we ought to be tremendously grateful that Jesus Christ is committed to be faithful to our soul. That's the first line of encouragement. Secondly, note with me that Jesus gives his disciples more than one chance. He gives them more than one chance. Have you ever considered his great patience with these men? If you and I had asked one of our friends to pray with us or to pray for us, and if we returned to find them sleeping, not just once, but three times... I'm sure we'd say something like, well, that's the last time I'm ever going to ask you to pray for me. I think our version of grace is like that of Major League Baseball, three strikes and you are out. But not so with Jesus. After their first failure, he patiently repeats his instruction. After their second failure, he gives them another chance. And after their third failure, notice, He does not return and say, that's it. You guys are no longer my disciples. You're out. No, look at verse 42. Rise. Let us. Let us be going. You see, he's not going to give up on these men. Having loved his own who were in the world, John says, and by the way, John the Apostle was one of these sleeping disciples, and so he says this by experience. He loved us to the end. And let me remind you that Jesus' patience with these men does not end here. Peter himself would go on to deny three times with cursing that he knows Jesus. And yet, within 40 days of that denial, the resurrected Lord would appear to Peter and he would say to him, not once, but three times, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, I'm giving you another chance. I'm giving you another chance. And friends, that's precisely how the Lord deals with us if we're believers. How many times have we failed to carry through with a resolution? Perhaps we resolve to be more consistent in our personal or family devotions, and this may be the 40th time we made that resolution, right? In the first few days, maybe the first week or two, we do pretty well. But before long, we find ourselves drifting, falling into the same patterns of sinful neglect. 
and yet the Lord has not cast us off. Here we are in his presence, worshiping him today. Maybe there's some besetting sin in our life and the Spirit of God convicts us through the preaching of the word and we promise the Lord we're going to mortify this sin. We'll never commit it again and yet, within a short time, we fall. But here we are today. If we're true believers, we're persevering in grace. And once again, you see, the Lord is ready to give us another chance as he did these disciples. And I don't know about you, but that's a tremendous encouragement to my faith. I mean, think about Jonah. What a waste case. What a tremendously poor example he was of someone who had no concern with the lost. You and I would think, Lord, you probably should look for somebody else to be that messenger to Nineveh. And yet the Lord gives Jonah another chance. And that's just the way God is. His grace is extravagant. But now notice thirdly, by way of encouragement, Jesus acknowledges their willing heart and he sympathizes with their weak flesh. Not only does he confront them for their spiritual apathy, but when he does so, notice this, Jesus, verse 38, he's quick to commend their willing heart and to concede their weak flesh. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed, that is to say the spirit in fact is willing, but the flesh, that is the body, is weak. One commentator refers to that last phrase as, quote, Jesus' gracious apology for his disciples. And he goes on to write, and I quote, For as a father, even when he punishes, pities his children, and makes all due allowances for true-heartedness and love, even so the Lord pities them that fear him. Jesus admitted their integrity while he indicated and condemned their infirmity. Place yourself in the shoes of a of a neutral bystander who just happened to be overlooking the garden that night, watching everything that happened. And after hearing Jesus continually instruct and entreat his disciples to pray for him, and after seeing his disciples continually again and again disregard Jesus' directives, you would conclude that this Jesus has great love and concern for these men, but they do not care a hoot about him. You and I, in other words, would detect no grace in their heart. However, and this is good news for you and me, Jesus can see what we cannot see. And according to our text, Jesus detects grace in their heart, a real desire to be faithful to him, even when that desire is buried beneath weak 
flesh. Now, brothers, <laughs> that ought to be great comfort to our soul. Our Lord and Savior searches the heart, and he sees true grace, sincere desire, even when that grace and desire is not evident to others, or even sometimes it's not even evident to us. And furthermore, Jesus understands and sympathizes with human weakness. I mean, it was, it was midnight. They had had a full day of activity, and according to Luke's account, we read that the disciples were sleepy because of sorrow. I mean, they were literally depressed. And this is how they responded to that depression, by sleeping. Now, they should have resisted that. I mean, in light of the ordeal that Jesus was facing, in light of the impending crisis that they themselves would face, they should have resisted. They should have girded up the loins of their mind. But they failed. And Jesus rebukes them for that. He holds them accountable. And yet, though rebuking them for their sin, he tenderly acknowledges their willing heart. And he goes on and he sympathizes with their weak flesh. We're reminded of Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I know that many of us are tempted to think that because Jesus is the Son of God, he knows nothing about what it's like to be tired, to, to feel pain, to feel the pressure of fear. But dear friends, if we're thinking that way, we're forgetting that Christ was not only true God, but he was true man, just like we are. And thus the writer goes on to say that he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And so, yes, Jesus knows what it's like to be tired. In fact, he knows what it's like to be depressed. My soul is sorrowful, he says, even to the point of death. I will not say that Jesus Christ had suicidal thoughts in a sinful sense. But I will say that he was so weighed down with sorrow that there was something about death that was attractive. He knows what that's like. But here's the thing. Jesus never gave in to the weakness of his flesh. He never gave in to that temptation, as, is the, as the disciples did. And yet, Jesus can still sympathize with their weakness. That's the amazing thing. You see, as we're told in Isaiah, the Messiah will not quench the smoking flax. He will not break the bruised reed. He's going to rebuke sin, but at the same time, he's going to see true grace in the heart, and he's going to sympathize with the weakness of his friends.
Dear faint-hearted brother and sister, this is the way that your Savior deals with you. He doesn't excuse your infirmities. Working 70 hours a week never justifies sinful anger. Living with chronic pain or sickness does not excuse sinful impatience or complaining. Losing a whole night of sleep does not relieve us of our responsibility to rejoice always in the Lord. But the point to remember is that even when the weakness of our flesh gets the upper hand, Jesus doesn't lose sight of genuine grace in our heart. He recognizes the godly desires of a believer even when those desires are buried beneath our human weakness. Can I say that this is the way that we ought to deal with one another? We ought not be so preoccupied with one another's weaknesses that we lose sight of one another's grace. And need I say, mom and dad, this is also the way we ought as parents to deal with our children. Again, I'm not suggesting we never exhort or rebuke or correct, but when we feel the need to do so, let's mix that correction with commendation for good and concession for weakness when appropriate. But now fourthly, by way of encouragement, Jesus does not allow his disciples to be tempted above their capacity. And for this point, I actually need to get you to turn to the Gospel of John, the parallel account in John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Jesus does not allow his disciples to be tempted above their capacity. We're going to look at verses 8 and 9. To set the context here, Judas Iscariot has brought the temple guards. He's identified Jesus with a kiss. The Lord doesn't resist, but he openly identifies himself as Jesus of Nazareth, whom they are seeking. Then notice what the Lord says in verses 8 and 9. I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, quote, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. According to this text, Jesus ordered the temple guards not to apprehend his disciples, but to allow them to escape in order to fulfill an earlier saying of his, namely, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Now that raises the question, when did Jesus say that, and to what does it refer? Well, to answer that question, we just need to go one chapter back in John, to John chapter 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer. And so on the night of his arrest, Jesus did not simply pray for himself 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he had already previous to that, in his high priestly prayer, prayed for his disciples, for their preservation. Notice how he does this in verse 12. Praying to his father, Jesus says, While I was with them, I kept them. That is, I preserved them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he's referring there to Judas Iscariot, because Judas Iscariot was not a believer. And then Jesus adds, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you should preserve or keep or guard them from the evil one. So what kind of protection is Jesus praying for? Well, he's not praying that they would be isolated from all trial and temptation. He says explicitly, I do not pray that you'll remove them out of the world. But what he is praying for here is preservation in spiritual grace. Because with the exception of Judas, who wasn't a true believer, Jesus had, in fact, preserved all of his true disciples in a state of spiritual grace. He made sure that he did not lose one. And dear friends, going back to John 18, that's precisely what he's doing at that moment. He's not merely looking out for their physical safety. But rather, Jesus knew that if these men were to be actually arrested and mistreated and interrogated as he was about to be, that they would run the risk of actually falling away, of apostatizing from the faith. He doesn't isolate them from every trial and temptation, but when he senses that the temptation is too great for them to bear, he makes a way of escape so that they are able to bear it. Dear child of God, Jesus Christ will not keep you in the sense of isolating you from every trial and temptation. Sometimes he allows you to be tempted severely. He may even allow you to fall into sin and fail him. Nevertheless, if you're a true child of God, your Savior will never allow it to go too far. He'll never allow one of his genuine disciples to get into a situation that would result in complete, irreversible apostasy. In the language of 1 Corinthians 10.13, God is faithful, who will not allow us to be tempted above what we were, are able, but will, with the temptation, he will provide for us a way of escape. Or in the words of 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And that's exactly what Jesus did for these men. He knew that at that moment... They needed a way out. And Jesus was committed to preserve their soul in spiritual grace. And dear friends, may I say 
That commitment applies to you if you're a true disciple. He who began a good work in you is determined to accomplish that work until Jesus returns. What a tremendous encouragement to our faith. But that brings me finally to the fifth point. Normally I only have three, but I have five this morning. Thanks for your patience here. My fifth word of encouragement. Not only does Jesus rebuke us for our sin, not only does he give us more than one chance, not only does he acknowledge our willing heart and sympathize with our weak flesh, not only does he ensure that we're not tempted above that we're able, but in the fifth place, Notice with me that Jesus does not allow the remaining sin of his disciples to deter him from dying on the cross so that those very sins, that spiritual apathy, that lack of love for Christ, would be forgiven by virtue of his sacrificial death on the cross. Look back at Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. Verses 41 and 42. Note with me that Jesus' determination to fulfill his Father's mission, to die on the cross, notice that it's expressed right on the heels of the repeated failure of his disciples. It says Jesus came the third time. He said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Dear friends, Jesus Christ is absolutely committed to do his Father's will, and to make atonement for his people's sins, even the sins of these sleeping disciples. Their lack of understanding, their failure to pray, their lack of courage, their failure to identify openly with Jesus and to confess his name before men, these sins and many, many, many other sins would not stop Jesus from fulfilling his role as their Savior. Rise, he says, let us be going. I have a saving work to do. And so years later, the Apostle Peter would write, and I can imagine that the tears stained the page upon which he wrote this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Dear brothers and sisters, if one of you has sinned this past week, perhaps even this morning, I can say this to you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And this advocate is just as determined to save our soul 
as he was determined to save the souls of these three sleeping disciples. Nothing, the Bible says, nothing, not even our remaining sin, can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that there may be somebody here today that could twist what I'm saying to mean something like, Dr. Bob, are you saying that we should sin more that grace may abound? No. No, you remember last week I said that sin's a very serious thing. We ought not want to sin. We ought to feel convicted about our sin. We ought to take it seriously. But the fact remains that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And as one preacher has said, if you don't preach a gospel that devils can abuse, then you're not preaching the true gospel. And thus it remains. Jesus will not allow the believer's remaining sin to deter him from fulfilling his role as the believer's loving Savior. And brothers and sisters, that blessed reality should not lead us to want to sin all the more. It ought rather to humble our souls, to compel us, to constrain us, to live not for ourselves, but unto Christ who died and rose from the grave. In the words of the hymn writer, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, I pour contempt on all my pride. <laughs> I forgot a line. My richest gain I also count as loss. But that should be our response. That's our reflex. As Jesus put it when someone asked him about a woman who was with her tears wiping his feet, washing his feet, he said this, do you want an explanation for why this woman loves me so much? It's because she knows what it's like to be forgiven much. If somebody asks for a description of a Christian, of a disciple, try this one. Somebody who's been forgiven much. That's all we are. People forgiven much. Dear friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a disciple. Here's Jesus' words to you. He says, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He stands ready to forgive you of your sins. He wants to forgive you of your sins. He said, my mission was to seek and to save the lost. 
But there's a real sense in which the ball is in your court. And what he requires of you is to simply feel your need of him. To acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your unworthiness. And to embrace him by faith. For the scripture says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And once you're saved, you have a Savior that guarantees to preserve your soul all the way to the end. May God be praised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for such a loving Savior. We thank you for exposing our sin, but we also thank you for encouraging our faith. And the more we meditate upon your mercy and compassion to us through Christ, the more, O Heavenly Father, we want to be faithful to you. The more we want our lives to adorn the gospel. And so we do pray this morning, give us fresh grace and help us to endeavor after new obedience. And Lord, we pray for anyone here who's not yet a true believer. We pray that you would warm that person's heart, not only with conviction of sin, but also with an apprehension of your mercy in Christ. And that you might irresistibly draw them to your Son. For Jesus' sake we ask this. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.